Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how elite level performers think, act, and operate. As always, if you're watching this on YouTube, a five-star review and a like, comment, share, and subscribe would be very much appreciated. And if you're listening to this on any of the podcasting platforms, I'd appreciate if you could do the same. I am fantastically delighted to be able to welcome Dan Head to the show today. Dan, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So Dan, if you could, for the guests out there who don't know who you are, tell us who you are, what you do, and some of your career highlights in two minutes or less. Certainly. So my name's Dan Head. I'm the Chief Revenue Officer of Braze, which is a New York-based MarTech company. It's a customer engagement platform. I've been in the business for six and a half years now. I was uh, the first employee in Europe back in January 2016. We got about 240 people in in, uh, London now. I've been in technology for my entire career since 1996. And I've been in sales since 1998. I'm actually a manufacturing engineer, which was actually part of my journey into, into technology. But yeah, very much uh, sales and the, the art of selling and working for, uh, in sales cultures for US-based tech companies is, has been the um, story of my life, I guess. Phenomenal. And uh, there's a lot of years that came out of that. So there's a, a lot to unpack in all of that, Dan. So let, let's go right the way back to the beginning in, in your first role, or a bit more about your, your earlier story. Just tell us a bit about that story, right? Your early days and how you eventually ended up getting into sales. I think I have to, I have to start that with where university started for me, because I, I wasn't, I wasn't, my father was an academic and I wasn't an academic. And I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Coventry University, which is not not one of the elite establishments of the UK, offered me a, a place on manufacturing systems engineering degree. So I thought, I don't know what that is, but that's the only offer I've got. So sure, I'll take that. And it was really the making of me, actually. It was, it's where I got to, I got to learn. Uh, it, it was a sandwich course. So I did a year in industry. And in that year in industry, I worked for a hydraulics and pneumatics company. And I got to learn about enterprise software systems. And I worked in procurement. And I suddenly felt this sort of uh, something tangible in my career. It wasn't about academia. It was about being practical. It was about making things happen. And just sort of learning about these systems. And I did my final year thesis on enterprise resource planning systems and fit and feedback loops. Subsequent to that, then when I finished university, I got a job on a help desk for an ERP system. And, and so I wasn't really into computers, actually. I was just into sort of systems and how businesses functioned on these, on these systems, on these platforms. So learning a bit about computers and systems and the practical application of them, the help desk was a a really brilliant place to start because you have to learn the technology really, really quickly because the clients that I was supporting knew a lot more about it than I did. Also got to know about their use of the systems, got to know about their gripes about the systems. But I also got to know the stories. I got to know what they were doing with it, uh, whether they were benefiting or not. And quite simply, I remember uh, this, and it was a US-based software company, but I remember seeing some people would come in the office sort of midway through the morning. They'd go for long lunches and then they would leave early. And I'd always be like, who are those guys? And somebody said to me, oh, those, those are the sales guys. 
I thought, oh, I quite fancy, that looks like quite a, quite a nice job. So I got to talking to some of them and, and befriended them. And the long story short is that understanding the product, understanding the customers, understanding the stories was the perfect way into a career in sales. So after 18 months of being on the help desk, I took a job in account management, which I did for nine months. And then after that, it was new business selling from that moment on. Hey, Elite Level team, appreciate you tuning into this week's episode. I just wanted to make sure that you know about a live sales masterclass that I'm hosting on the 4th of June at a special venue in central London. So if you're an SDR or an early stage AE, we're going to be going through everything that it takes to be a best in class account executive, everything from territory planning right the way through to discovery, role plays and more. And I want to make sure that you are there. So be sure to visit www.elitelevelacademy.com. That's www.elitelevelacademy.com to make sure that you can book a call with me, schedule your ticket, and I'll see you there. It's a fascinating story. And in many ways, it doesn't sound like a lot of it was by design. In a way, it seems like you you fell into some of these things going from university and then that role and then the transition into sales. So I'd be curious to know that first experience, right? That first six to 12 months with it being pretty big shift from what you were doing prior. And as you say, quite a academic type roles that you were doing before and what that transition was like and how it lended itself into your sales role. Well, one of the things that's occurred to me over the years is that, and I've got I've got kids now that are going through GCSEs and and A levels, and we we think about academic skill, but we we don't grade people on their approach to gaining results. We grade people on the results. So, for example, over over the years, I've I've learned that some of those traits that I had when I was younger, like leaving revision too late, having to just get through my exams with kind of sort of really putting myself under excessive pressure. I suppose adapting to an environment that I was never really that comfortable in. I see now how those those things about me that were not that great for, for doing exams and, and for academia were actually really good for the environment that I've actually ended up in. So the fact that I chose to go on a university course I didn't apply for, and I was totally okay with that. I was just, I'm just going to go with it. I'm just going to take one step, then see what happens, and then become a bit more informed, and then make some other decisions. The only opportunity I had for work experience was at, was at this engineering company in Nuneaton making, you know, train buffers and hydraulics. And I thought, it's great. Let's do it, you know. And that sort of that side of me, and I think that side of, of people that are just willing to adapt and not think too much and realize that by taking action, you become informed and then you can just take the next step. That was definitely important in this move from, well, getting into the, into technology in the first place and then moving from support into sales. Because I think everyone that's, everyone that's, ever gotten into sales, they probably didn't intend for their career to be in sales. I'm sure most of the people you you, you talk to are the, are the same. They didn't do a degree in selling. And that feeling you get when you have your, your first quota and you've got a number and you realize that it's not hard work that you're being graded on now, it's, it's a, the, the cold, hard reality of a number and that your employment depends on it. And that's something that 
people outside sales, that's the thing that they always say. That's the reason they don't want to be in sales. So they don't want that, that pressure. And I think when I, when I first got into sales, I was, I did feel that way. I thought, my, my goodness, what have I got myself in, um, into? But I was surrounded by great mentors. And I, I think that's, that's definitely something we, we should talk about today. And, but I suppose I, I didn't overthink it. I just had that feeling of, I'm just going to take that next step and I'm going to learn and become informed. And I was surrounded by people that made me realize that I just had the right constituent parts. And so on one side, I have even now, after 24 or five years of doing this, I still have that anxiety. I still worry about the number all the time. I still worry about being fired by not delivering the number. But I've learned over time that I couldn't do any other work. I couldn't do any other work without having that carrot to chase. I don't think I'd get up. I get up in the morning. So I think, again, this is this is sort of taking those things about myself and this, this sort of, uh, you know, getting older and having some introspection. I've just learned that, that, yeah, those, those things about me, which are perhaps not great at school, are actually really good ingredients for, for, for this career. This is really powerful in many ways, Dan. I, uh, the reason I love doing these in person is you can really feel a lot of the words that are coming from you here. One of the things I want to get under the cover with is really the, your drive, right? Because, you seem very, you know, I can tell in the words that you're saying, there was a level of intent. There was something that you were trying to funnel or feed in yourself as you were taking these decisions. You've spoken a lot about being very present, right? Taking a step, gaining information, taking the next step. But what was really driving you through all of this? When you look through that tunnel, what direction of travel did you have in your own mind? So I think I have to put this in the context of when I started doing selling. So my first year of selling was, was 1998 and I was selling ERP systems. And at the time, businesses were buying technology to solve for the Y2K problem, which many people either forgotten about or didn't know about, which was that there was a concern about the, the core system date rolling over from 1990 to, to 2000. Everyone thought that these systems are going to completely fail and the world's going to end. So Businesses in the in the late 1990s updated and refreshed their core business systems so that they could take them into the year 2000, literally just manage the date change. But the first year that I got into selling, all, the market had already replaced their systems. So en masse, I'm selling manufacturing resource planning systems, MRP, ERP systems. The market had already done that. They did that in 96, 97. And my first year of selling 98, the, the industry had already made these changes. So no one was buying. And even, it was, I, I loved the company I worked for, but the software wasn't that great. It wasn't, it wasn't the, the cutting edge or the leading vendor in the marketplace. And so the tech wasn't that great and no one was buying it, but I had a quota. And I suppose, again, I, I didn't really overthink it. I just sort of got stuck into it. I, I knew the technology because I'd worked on the help desk. I knew the customers. I knew the stories. And I had a, a who turned out to be the, the greatest mentor for my, for my career happened to be there as well. And I, I just remember thinking, I need to really pay attention to the theory because I haven't got a clue what selling is or how to sell. So I went on my training course that the, the company put me on one external training course and one internal training course. So the external one we're talking about, how do you make it, you know, how do you pitch to sell washing machines? It was completely, I thought irrelevant, actually it was really irrelevant. 
and then the internal training course. And I, in the absence of knowledge about selling, I just soaked up the theory of sales, the, the, the process of selling like a sponge. And I took it really, really, really literally. So here's my manual. What's the first step? This one. Okay. I've got the clients do that. Next step, this one. And I was amazed at how the theory that I've been taught actually worked. I, I couldn't believe it, actually. I remember there was one part of the sales training that said during the pitch meeting, when the client says, so we're going to go away now, digest, think about it, we'll get back to you. I would do a surprise close. <laughs> well, how about we do it now kind of thing. And I remember this is a market where no one was buying. There were, there were no leads. There were very, very few and far between companies that had waited too late, I guess, to replace their systems. And I remember one, it was a, it was a forge manufacturing business near Newcastle upon Tyne. And I did this surprise close in the meeting, literally just following my, my, my theory. And the CEO said, let me just have a chat with my team. I went out of the room and I came back in again and he said, all right, let's sit down and, and cut a deal. And we did. And I thought, my goodness, it works. I couldn't believe it. I had such a buzz about that. And I suppose that combination of the product skill, knowing the customers, knowing the stories, trusting the process of selling, trusting the science of selling, being willing to, if you like, take a risk by trusting the science of selling. And then I saw it worked and I thought, this is real and this is really good fun. And so from that moment on, really, it, it, it kind of had a momentum of itself. And, and, and the, the art of selling, the chess game of selling just became my passion. And I suppose just, I also had a couple of experiences in my career where I felt like I suddenly realized there were a couple of, a couple of cycles where I thought that was perfect sales cycle. It was perfect because the client was actually doing the selling for me. I'd be in the meeting and I really wouldn't say anything that they were literally just selling amongst themselves in this group. I think from that moment on, I realized that it is perfect. You can almost have the perfect sales cycle and then life becomes the pursuit of doing it again, which is really hard because if you play chess, you might play that, play that perfect game of chess, but doing it again is really hard or unlikely, but that's why it's so exciting. And that, I think that's what's kept me going since. It's a phenomenal story, right? And it, it reminds me of that saying that theory is only ultimately theory without implementation or action. And one of the things that really jumps out to me in everything that you're saying is that you, you take the theory, you ingest it, but then you take action on it, right? You measure the result. And what you started to see was by mastering the, the science and, and balancing some of that with the art, you started to get predictability, it sounds like, in the results that you were driving and a level of consistency, which I'm sure for you as a CRO has become very important over time. So it's, there's a lot to take away in that story there, Dan. You've mentioned mentors a fair amount up until this point. So let's dive into that and understand more about the role mentors have played for you. And, and if you could feed that into the advice that you'd have out there to others in terms of either sourcing mentors or uh, how they should go about curating some of the results that you've gotten from that. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll start off by just talking to a point that I get asked a lot, which is, you know, what, what books do you recommend I have to admit, I've I've never really found anything that really hits a spot for me. You know, you can read power-based selling or the challenger sale. Or, and I've always thought that that's, a, that's an interesting commentary 
on an element of selling. But I don't think I'm going to find a book that teaches me how to paint like a great artist. Uh, I can buy a book that's going to teach me techniques about playing guitar, but it's not going to really turn me into a great guitar player. And I I, I think selling is an art. And I, I think you can dive into tips and techniques, but really there is a process. And then the art of applying that process is what the career in selling is all is going to teach you. So the, 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 the books were never, they never really hit the spot for me. It was, for me, it's all about, it's all about great mentors. So and I'll just segue a bit. So yesterday, and I'm, I'm doing a bit of work with Laura Kenny, the the Olympic uh, cyclist. And she's the greatest female Olympian, um, British female Olympian in history. And I'm doing a lot of work with her on what does it mean to be coachable? What is your responsibility as somebody who is being coached? And what are your expectations and what's the responsibilities of the coach? And I think the first mentor I had, without maybe doing it in a sort of prescriptive or deliberate sense. He just did it very, very naturally. He was just a really, really great, great salesperson. And I, I would just, I would follow his lead. So if, if I was writing an email, then it was actually writing a letter and stick it in the mail. He would sit down with me and we would talk about, well, is that the right language we want to use? Can that sentence be shorter? Can we take this much text and make it that much text? Can we make the the tone, the sentiment a little bit more positive? Have we got the right call to action? Are we sending it to the right people? Who should we send it to? And I'm if I would and I thought, if I'm gonna sit down with you for 90 minutes or two hours to write one email, my goodness, that must be important to you. And if it's important to you, it's important to me. So he taught me what was important and what what things that are important means in terms of our behaviors and the time that we're gonna spend on it and the nuances of selling. And I learned that the product of selling, the the art of selling is in those moments, is in those deliverables, is on the, the, the way that we think about those things. So, so he taught me that. And I've seen that now with my leadership team. The, the great mentors are the ones that understand that their job is to take the members of their team by the hand and say, I'm going to show you how it's done. And I'm going to show you how to make money. And after I've shown you how it's done, you're going to do it and I'm going to critique you and help you polish that. It's a, a, a process of, it's, it's reciprocity between the individual being coached and the coach. And it really is a, a two-way relationship with responsibility on both sides. And great managers really understand that. And back to the Laura Kenny thing, you know, she, she will talk about that in exactly the same way. She said to me yesterday that if it wasn't for the, the riders, the coaches wouldn't have a job. And I wouldn't be able to improve if it wasn't for the coach. So there's that sort of respect for our, uh, for each, each's position in that, in that relationship. Absolutely. And, you know, in that you, you've mentioned a bit about what the mentor particularly needs to bring to that, but I'm sure people will be wondering as the, the student, so to speak, or as that other person, how do we define what being coachable actually looks like? And is it something that can one be measured and then secondly, actually be improved upon? I think a lot of the basics really do need to be talked about. And I find myself in my team, I did it this morning in the office, really talking about those, those basics. So let me give you an example. The number one enemy, the greatest competitive threat that we have as salespeople is the lack of time. Salespeople do not understand that they don't have enough time. And the reason why time is a, 
competitive threat is because there's eight hours a day, there's so many hours in the week, so many hours in the month, and your quota runs over a year. So literally your quota is tied to time and a finite amount of it. So you better get moving and you better spend your time wisely. But managers typically don't sit down with people in their team and say, let's look at how you're spending your time. Let's look at how you're spending your day. Let's look at how you're managing your boundaries. Let's look at what you're saying no to. Are you um, looking after yourself? Are you looking after your family? Are you looking after your your well-being? Are you getting time away from the laptop? Are you spending enough time training and developing? Are you spending enough time prospecting, you know, top, middle, bottom of the funnel, all that kind of stuff? And it's it's funny how if you have that conversation with people, they, they'll often say, oh, yeah, 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 I'm managing my time well. But then if you actually open up their calendar or if you open up their email or their slacks or whatever they use, it's amazing how much time people waste. So just using that as an example, a great mentor will say, well, l- let me see, you know, you're, you're, you're following all these, you're following all these Slack channels. You're reading all these articles. Do you think you, do you really need to do that? Let's look at how much time you can get back. It's a little bit like, you know, you see in movies when the newbie goes on the hike with the army. And the first thing that happens is the captain will take all the stuff out of the bag they don't need. It's, it's, it's kind of like that. You've got to, You've got to be lean. You've got to be deliberate. Every moment of your time has got to add value either to your towards achieving your goal or to your well-being or the people around you. And so if you take that that sort of mindset as a, as a coach of paying attention to the details and actually spelling them out and being invested in, in paying attention to those details and you as the individual being coached, being open to that kind of collaboration – then the, the relationship tends to work. Absolutely. It's a um, really interesting way that you've broken it down. It feeds into a point that I talk a lot about, which is really focusing on getting the best possible ROI on your time. And one of the parts of that is that people forget that willpower is a finite resource. And quite often what we see is people maybe front loading their day or where they have the most energy, they're spending that doing administrative tasks or things that ultimately aren't necessarily key to the outcomes that they need to drive for the month. So I often say, think about where do you have the most energy? When do you have the most vigor? How can you prioritize that use of, you know, your time, your effort, your energy, where it's really important and impactful in the day, because willpower drains as the day goes on. And so you can find yourself easily getting swayed throughout the day. So I think it's a nice addition to what you've spoken about. Now, Dan, you got into sales leadership right at a particular point in this journey and I want to just explore more about what makes great leaders but also how you go and think about building and expanding teams regions and things of that nature so maybe if you could just walk us through that first step and then fast forward us through some of the other leadership roles that you've taken on one of the mistakes I think people make in their careers is to think Management is a destination I need to get to as soon as possible. And I I fundamentally disagree with that. And I very actively try to coach people out of that. Quite simply because management is going to be really, really difficult if you are not a really, really good mentor. And to be a really, really good mentor, you have to have a, a broad base of experiences to call upon. And you need a level of maturity so that you can be credible. So if somebody, for example, has spent time 
maybe in well put it, put it we put it this way when i think about the different levels of b2b enterprise selling so you know smb small mid-sized business i think that's i, I describe that as learning the chess game learning how to sell then there's sort of mid-market which i think is a bit like a street fight because you now know you can sell but you can't make so many mistakes there's less room for error it's really competitive and then there's enterprise selling which is where you have to learn to be a politician but ultimately you're learning about yourself because by that point you do know how to sell but you might have been doing 20 transactions a year and then eight transactions a year and now maybe you're doing one or two which means one or two commission checks a year and you're surrounded by people that are making money all the time and you're not and probably by that time maybe you're married maybe you've got a mortgage maybe you've got kids and you're also getting fewer commission checks than your colleagues who are who are uh, less experienced younger and less experienced and yet you've got more responsibility so you've got to, you learn a lot about yourself you and if you you learn about rejection earlier in your and how to manage rejection early in your career but in enterprise selling you really learn about your behavior remaining positive you learn about be- believing in yourself and the technology and believing in the process it's it's a very sort of zen state i think true enterprise selling especially strategic account selling so you can imagine if you haven't been through those different phases of selling at some point it's been very difficult for you to manage people who are doing that so if you want to get into first line management sure you can jump into that early but if you want to get into senior management, you really need to have a wealth of experiences to call upon. So people might think I'm not getting into management sooner, sooner as I'd like, but their careers will massively speed up if they just spend some time to, to get those skills. So the different levels of selling SMB through to enterprise, selling different products, because you can't just rely on product skill or industry skill. You need to Teach yourself that you can take your sales skills and apply them independent of the product and industry that you're working in. So if you think about it as kind of a, as a three-dimensional matrix, so you've got the different levels or, 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 or sizes of business you can sell to. And then on another axis, you've got different products and industries, value propositions that you're selling. And then there's another axis, which is whether it's direct or indirect, learning about channels and communities and ecosystems. And once you've got that cube if you're like well surrounded, you're in a pretty good position then to manage. And management really, especially senior management, is all about having a template and a roadmap. Because people who are who are in your team and following you want they want to know, does the captain of the ship know where they're going? And if you don't have that roadmap of experience, you don't really know where you're going. And that's gonna make it very challenging for you as a leader. So really long answer to your question, Alex, but I, I think what I'm trying to say is that the management is the, e- is the easy part and you can learn about leadership and leadership is a, is a set of skills that you, anyone can learn that, but you can really only apply it once you've got those right foundations. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating one, right? Because I, I suspect there'll be listeners out there that are sitting in that seat itching, feeling like they're ready for that next step or feeling like they've earned or deserved that next step, which I'm sure is a, is a common thing. But ultimately, it's that question of some people might say you only get that real experience once you take the step up, once you're in that role. So I'm curious what you'd say to those people out there that say, Dan, well, look, 
I need to be given that opportunity to then demonstrate that I'm ready and understand and learn and exemplify. So one, how do they get best prepared? And then two, what would your response be to someone that says that? Yeah, I agree with that. I think too many too many companies try and hire square pegs for square holes. And that doesn't serve the individual because if you've already been doing that job, why would you go to another company and do the same job? And it doesn't serve the company because you want somebody who's going to be hungry and really step up into that position. So I think regardless of the of the level of role that that you're hiring for in a business you you want to hire people for whom that is the next logical step in their career and then they will have that healthy anxiety of not really having the the skills and the experience and the capabilities of it but they've got all the constituent parts and foundations to be ready so if you like you're giving them the benefit of the doubt you're leaning in and giving them the opportunity and then the individual will reciprocate and give it all they've got. And that giving it all they've got is what will give them that momentum through their, through their career. So, so yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I, and I think it, it becomes difficult because it becomes uh, complicated in that businesses often don't like to promote people. Businesses too often keep people kind of in their, in their roles, maybe too long. And individuals find the only way they can climb the, the, the corporate ladder is, is to leave. And, I think really the the answer to that is probably somewhere in the middle. I think businesses have got a responsibility for nurturing people that is not just best for the business, but giving decent career advice about what is best for that individual. You know, you do need to put the time in in the different places. But at the same time, sometimes moving somewhere else is what you need to get that multidimensional foundation anyway, which is what is ultimately going to going to feed your career. And so it's kind of on, it's on that business provide the, the good advice. And it's on the individual to also decide what's right. Yeah, I suspect this is where the mentorship probably comes in as well, right? You, you've spoken about how massive a role that's played in your career. And I suspect, suspect having both an internal sponsor or mentor and also someone external to be able to soundboard some of these ideas around with would be super valuable, right? So Something else I want to explore with you, Dan, is really what makes A players, right? You, you've interviewed a lot of salespeople. You've got, I'm sure, some superstars in, in all of your teams. So if someone was sitting across from you as the candidate, how do they go and wow you and, and really impress you? Yeah, over, over the years, there, there are three things that I've sort of distilled great sales, and not just great salespeople, actually, just just people who tend to excel in in any particular field. I think I think it comes down to intelligence, paranoia and conscientiousness. I think in in this business you you do need to have a a level of intellectual capability. You know, you you need to be able to grasp concepts, you need to be reasonably proficient at language, you need to be fairly quick on, you know, basic mathematics. You need to be able to gather concepts, be adaptable. So there's, there's a reasonable level of, in, of intelligence that you need. But like I said at the start, <laughs> you know, I'm not an academic, so maybe, maybe you don't need too much. But then paranoia and conscientiousness, I think, are really interesting because uh, 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 so, so Sir David Brailsford, you know, the the, the famous performance director at, uh, at Team Sky and Bridge Cycling, he's now, I think, um, working for uh, Team Ineos. He talks about in order to excel at anything, the individual has to come into that environment with an intrinsic commitment to it. So individuals can be coached and skills can be honed, but if you don't want it, I can't make you want it. So somebody has to come to the door with that. But with that, then this paranoia and conscientiousness, I think is the real magic. So 
paranoia is that sort of healthy anxiety that makes people sort of sit up whenever they think, whenever someone tells them there might be something that we've missed. There's more work to be done. There's a, uh, a consideration that we've overlooked. And you can see it with people when even the most sort of um, alpha salespeople with the greatest swagger, when you say, I'm a bit concerned about something, they sort of, they sit up. You know, they've got that kind of meerkat look. They're, they're now worried, you know, the edge of their seat. That is the thing which is so good for, for salespeople. You know, what what's the competitor doing? If I'm in the office, is my competitor going going for coffee with my client? Are they meeting them at an event? If my executives aren't meeting with the client, are my competitors' executives meeting with the client? That constant kind of, maybe I could do more. What have I missed? That That's really, really healthy. And conscientiousness is really just the art of paying attention to your, to your, to your audience. You know, people are busy, you know, don't send me emails this long, send them something really short. It, it, one of the things I gripe about with my team is people that biz dev into me and say, dear Dan, I know you're really, really busy. So, I, so I'll just keep this short. And I think, well, you didn't, you made me read that, you know, or dear Dan, I hope you're well. I think, do you, do you hope I'm well? You know, maybe that's, maybe I'm a bit of a psycho, but I, I just think that's that's not paying attention to your audience. So are you providing information in a valuable way, in a concise way, in a digestible way, in a way that's articulated that I can consume it and get it quickly? Right now you've done me a favor. You've you've added value to my thinking. You've maybe illuminated a challenge and you've made me respect you for going about it in a humble, helpful way. And it, you know, it's a bit like when you, you invite a client to the meeting room, does everything about that room speak to who you are and how much you care? You know, the seat's dirty, is the table dirty? Have you laid it out nicely? You know, instead of having a 40 slide deck, is it, maybe it's eight slides. I'm always amazed at people who present slides and then say, oh, don't worry about that one, go to the next one. You know, if you don't care about the slides, the client's definitely not going to care about the slides. You need to know and care for and curate everything in order to be compelling. That's something my wife says, you know, it's not, it's not um, if you're going to do a job, do it well. It's if you're going to do a job, do it beautifully. And I think that's what it is. And if, if everything about the experience that the client has of dealing with you is polished and concise and clean and clear and no fuss then that's going to be representative of the service that you're going to provide. So again, some real super gems in this, uh, in this, Dan, I'm just soaking it all up. In those three things, you know, we look at intelligence and, you know, you can immediately start to think about how that can be measured and how you can start to identify those types of things. But we then talk about conscientiousness and that healthy, you know, almost anxiety or however you, you know, choose to frame it. Those things aren't, they don't jump off the page as being easy to be able to measure or understand within that finite amount of time and where maybe you're interviewing someone or spending a bit of time. Also, how do you develop those things, right? So those are the things that are going through my head. Curious to know how much of that is intrinsic in someone versus capabilities that can be developed, measured and managed. Well, you know, you can tell a lot from an individual, actually, from any interaction with them. So if you look at someone's LinkedIn page or if you look at their their resume, again, it's I, I really, really drill into that like a hawk, you know. 
I want to see that the dates line up. So often the dates don't line up, you know. So are you still working there? It says that date to, to, to present. Oh no, I left 18 months ago. All right. So you're not working there. So that's not, that's not right. No, no, I haven't updated my, my LinkedIn page or there's a gap in the career here in, in, in the timeline five years ago. What happened there? Oh, well, that's not really right. And I think, well, if you don't, if you don't care about your resume, if you don't care about your personal brand on your LinkedIn page, what else don't you care about? And I think these little things to me aren't being pedantic. They are leading indicators. So another example will be, you know, salespeople famously don't like updating their CRM system. You know, their opportunities and their dates and their notes and the managers always say, you know, get your data right and fill it in. And the salesperson's like, oh, here we go again. Now it's partly, and I know that because I used to feel that way as well, but it's, it's partly about enabling the business to be informed. And we, we have a responsibility for enabling the business to be informed. But the thing is, is these are leading indicators. If a salesperson's on top of their opportunities and their data, and they are representing that to the business accurately, then they're probably on top of other things as well. But where I see dates wrong, dollars wrong, notes wrong, I drill into how that person's working and other things are being neglected as well. They're just leading indicators. So I think when you, when I interview people, I can just, I can garner a lot from how they enter an interview, what they bring into that interview with them, LinkedIn or, or resumes. And then if, if someone's going to give me an, you know, a, a, an example or a deal, like, did, did you hear the question that, that I asked? Are you responding? Are you talking too much? Are you being concise? You know, you're doing it in a compelling way. I think there are signals everywhere. You just got to tune your radar for it. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you had me thinking as you were talking about it, and I better make sure all of my stuff is all <laughs> up to date, which I'm sure it is. So now I want to fast forward with you here, Dan. I remember you joining Braze when it was at Boy, and you mentioned being the first person on the ground in EMEA. So what I want to understand through all of that is how did you have the foresight to make that type of decision when you did. And I think it's fair to say, you know, it was a great decision or it's paid off very well when you look at the the performance of the company since then. So how did you have that foresight? And what's your advice for those people out there trying to navigate their own career decisions? It's quite a broad question, but take it however you feel you need to. Yeah, honestly, I think it's a, it's again, it's a, it's a combination of good fortune and trusting people trusting people uh, around you uh, as I did around me. So I heard somebody say a long time ago that it'd be good to, good to get some experience working abroad. So an opportunity came up for me in 2003 to move to the States. And I thought, I'll take it. So I went to States, lived there for seven years, worked there. I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life there, but the company got acquired. The division I worked for got shut down. And then I I moved back and took a different job. But again, it was, there was a, there was a signal there about that's a good addition to your career. And I decided to follow that signal. And then there was, you know, I've had career highlights and lowlights. I've certainly, I, I I joined a company uh, a while back that was really no good for me. And that didn't work out. I was only there for, for for nine months. I think everyone gets to make a mistake, and that also informs your career. So I th- so I think that's I think that's okay. But I did get a job where I at Salesforce in 2012 that that taught me a lot, that connected me a lot, that took me into a new industry, and I just met some great people there. And 
some very, very smart people, some people smarter than me. And I trust those people. And when it came to starting to look around at what's next, I was paying attention as to what other people were saying to me. Again, like when I was told it's good to work abroad. Of all the startups, who knows which are the good ones and who knows what are the bags of nails. And I think there was certainly a degree of risk there, but it was a time in my career where it was good for me to take a risk. And it was a qualified risk because the individual who suggested that I, I did it is a, a, a very inspirational, very smart guy. He's my, my boss at Braze. And he said, he said, this is the one, this is the one you need to come over and we need to do it. And I was just, I don't need to know anymore. Cause if you think it's great, it is great. And I've got the constituent parts. So lean in and take the risk. Wow. It's uh, clearly been a fantastic decision for you. And we've seen your career continue to grow and scale at this stage of your career, Dan, you know, if we almost peel back the layers slightly and, and, you know, we got to be in your mind, what is still really driving you at this stage? What, what is it that's getting you excited and, and humbled and hungry to get up and, and keep pushing? Because some people might argue just looking blanket slate, it looks like you've climbed to the top of the mountain in a way, right? Just on paper. So just let us in, you know, what is it that keeps you going at this point? Well, the fact that I'm here and enjoying your work is actually, is, is, is it really? I am fascinated. So I, 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 the, the thrill I get from, sailing, uh, from selling is still the chess game. I enjoy the chess game of sales. I enjoy working with other people who enjoy the strategic chess challenge of, of selling. And it's, but it's been extended recently, you know, sort of beyond scaling teams beyond helping you know other people and, and develop i've now become just really fascinated with with performance culture you know what what is it that really really great i'm not, not gonna say yeah i'll say teams do to create just incredible productivity so whether it's the, the team sky cycling team or the la rams winning the super bowl or an automotive factory, which is all about extremely efficient throughput. They've all got similar things in common in terms of how they select talent, inspire talent, provide an environment for high performance. And then how does, again, like Formula One teams, how, how, how then do you organize to optimize that environment so that you, we can get the greatest possible output, but also the individuals have the the greatest fulfillment and well-being in that career experience. Because I am a believer that you can be more productive but spend less time on it and therefore get more time to do other stuff that you enjoy enjoy doing. You know, people don't want to spend every waking hour working. You know, this is a means to an end. So I'm just really fascinated by that. That's why I'm talking to Laura Kenny at the moment. I'm working with a whole bunch of other mentors from other fields talking about performance and well-being. And and that to me is a really exciting challenge because I think businesses haven't paid enough attention to this. I think businesses think of learning and development. You know, you 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 go to a course or you go online and go through some tutorial and that great check, right? That person's now learned that, move on. Or uh, maybe we'll send somebody on a training, we'll give them a badge or something like that. I think that approach to sort of enablement, learning development is is quite passe now. I think performance coaching is much more proactive, much more tailored to the individual. I think it 
is all about throughput and productivity, not just about a skills matrix. And I think there's a real opportunity in, in, in business now for companies to extend their perspective on culture into performance and, and, and coaching for productivity. You know, for, I'll give an example. Every business, quite rightly, is paying attention to diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, the chemistry of their teams, the, the sentiment in, in their organizations, and so on. But to what end? It's not just so that we've got a bunch of metrics. It's because we are trying to create an environment that is a high-performance environment. And a high-performance environment is one where people feel comfortable, where the culture is inspiring, where it's progressive. And in these environments, employees self-regulate and protect their teams because they value it. You know, HR people teams need to do an awful lot of work to sustain teams that can't sustain themselves. So if you if you just create a genuinely great environment, you're solving for future performance concerns down the line, future scale problems down the line, because the individuals are going to self-regulate that environment for performance. And that's why DEI is important. So I'm just really, really fascinated by that. And, and there's a, an awful lot of learnings and it's it's really challenging and it's meaning I can draw on mentors and people for inspiration in, in different fields. And that to me is, if you like, the... It's the whole next phase of this journey. It's great to hear more about that, Dan. And um, yeah, personally taken away a ton from this so far. Look, I have one final question for you. And if you've listened to any, then you'll know what's coming. But it's really to answer for that person out there who wants to go from good to elite level in their career. What would the best piece of advice be that you'd have for them? I would say take ownership of your career and be, be deliberate in the curation of it. So don't just sit around waiting to be noticed and also don't demand things that you probably haven't earned the right for yet. In the middle of those spaces is you taking ownership of your career, thinking just having one good year is not enough. Businesses care about performance times time. In fact, businesses and leaders want to see people go through bad years because I want to see how that individual learns and nurtures when you know they've you know they they they've been kicked around a bit and had a, had a hard time of it, and we often learn a lot more from that than from from successful years. So, performance times time, the highs and the lows, developing a a rich, broad, multi dimensional foundation for your career, being deliberate about it, seeking input for it, but ultimately just owning it and curating it. And then if you've got a clear vision, it will probably come true. That's a fantastic way to finish. And I officially give you something else for your mantelpiece that you're our first ever CRO to appear on the Elite of All podcast. So it's been an absolute pleasure having yeah, you on, Dan. Pleasure, pleasure. So I hope that you all enjoyed that episode. I personally certainly did. So if you did, please be sure to like that, press that like button, comment, share and subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, a five star review would be greatly appreciated. Please be sure to stay tuned for the next one. We'll see you soon.